This is Gene Therapy for Hemophilia, Dream or Reality, a show on behalf of the Canadian Hemophilia Society. Here's your host, David Page. It's a great pleasure to introduce our guest for today's podcast, Dr. David Lillycrap, Professor, Department of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Lillycrap is a Canada Research Chair in Molecular Hemostasis, and he's Director of the Southeastern Ontario Regional Inherited Bleeding Disorders Lifespan Program. Dr. Lillycrap has been conducting research in hemophilia gene therapy for four decades, three decades, four decades, we'll see, and is world-renowned. Today, he will describe the results of clinical trials in gene therapy for hemophilia A and B. Welcome, Dr. Lillycrap. David, it's wonderful to see you again. And indeed, I have been working around gene therapy, principally in preclinical studies now for over 30 years. So as you can imagine, I'm really happy to contribute to this uh, webcast. Dr. Lillycrap, before we talk about the levels of factor 8 and 9 activity that might be achieved with gene therapy, what levels of factor 8 and 9 activity are normally needed to protect people from bleeding? So as the uh, people listening to this podcast will know, we classify hemophilia into three categories, severe, moderate, and mild disease, although increasingly people talk about severe and non-severe disease. To be severe, you have no detectable factor eight or nine in the blood. And then from that point on, the disease is milder. Spontaneous bleeds tend not to occur once you reach about 10% levels. There is a little bit of debate about that, but if we could achieve gene therapy with constant levels of between 10 and 20%, the number of bleeding events that would occur would be very, very drastically reduced. So spontaneous bleeding levels, 10 to 20% would be excellent. So factor eight and nine levels rise soon after administration of gene therapy. Can you tell us how quickly they rise? and how soon after administration that levels stabilize? You begin to see the levels rising from the gene therapy after about two to four weeks. So after one month, you should be able to take a blood sample and measure the level of factor eight or nine in the regular way that you do with factor eight replacement therapy after factor eight infusions. So initially at around about a month, and then the levels continue to increase to about six months And then what happens is different between factor eight and nine. What we've seen is that the factor nine levels, once they reach a level at about three to six months, that level stays persistent out to a number of years, at least to three or four years and maybe beyond that. But with factor eight, the levels start to fall at about six months and they fall by about 50% over the next two years and then plateau at a much lower levels. So let's say you reach a a peak level of 50%, two years out, that will be more likely down to about 20, 25%, and then maybe slight falling off a little bit beyond that. So quite different between factor eight and nine. We'll come back to that in some more detail in, in a minute. Do all people have the same response? There is significant variability between patients. Some patients, a very small number, about 5%, do not respond. So they have no no production of factor eight or nine. But the majority have some response, but that response can go from 10% levels to 150% or maybe even sometimes higher. And the problem is that at the moment for individual patients, we have no way of predicting where you will be 
in that large range of factor levels. Uh, so the unpredictability is an issue which the field is trying to resolve, but we're not close, I think, to being able to do that currently. And do we understand why this happens, why there's a different response in, in different people? I think gene therapy is still very complicated. It's taken us 35 years to reach this point, but there are still many unanswered questions, partly to do with the therapy itself, and then partly to deal with the individual uh, genetics and other aspects of individual patients. And so the, the answer to your question is probably going to be a, a sort of a multifactorial equation, which I probably would not understand and certainly couldn't explain. We'll come back to um, to the question of prophylaxis following gene therapy in a minute. I want to come back to the question of, of durability that you mentioned, that especially in factor eight, factor levels don't seem to be to be stable. As you say, we have to distinguish hemophilia A and hemophilia B. Could you give us more detail about you know, how high people get in terms of their factor levels, how quickly they respond, and, and how long these, these levels might last, uh, and distinguishing A from, from B. Yeah, so let's talk about hemophilia A first, where you would start to see factor eight in the blood at about two to four weeks. The levels would rise to a peak at about six months. An average level would be a, between about 40 and 50%. Now, there are some people who would have much higher levels, and remember, a small percentage, less than 10%, who may have almost no response. Let's take the person with 50% levels at six months. Within two years, that level may be down to about 20%. And then the fall-off seems to be much slower. We've got patients now out to six years. So in terms of durability, six years of expression. And those levels are between about 10 and 20%. Uh, so there's certainly levels that we know from natural history will prevent spontaneous bleeding, but there may be breakthrough bleeds, particularly with activity or trauma or other things. So that's the factor eight story. The factor nine story is different. Again, you'd expect to see levels beginning at about two to four weeks. They may peak somewhere around three to four months, and then they seem to stabilize going out now to the longest human patients are out to 12 years or so with levels that really haven't changed much uh, since about year two or three after gene therapy delivery. Oh, and I should say actually one other quick word about hemophilia A, because some people listening may be quite disappointed. But as you know, we have um, hemophilia dogs here in, in Kingston. And some of those dogs after single treatments had persistent factor eight albeit at lowish levels, out to 12 years. So the durability, honestly, even factor eight, may be quite long, over a decade. So in the case of dogs, that was their entire lives, really. Yes. They had lifelong levels of protected factor eight, albeit the levels were between 5 and 10%. They weren't very high, but they were protective of spontaneous bleeding. So this, in many cases, would be enough to keep people off factor eight or nine prophylaxis? Yeah. So the, the clinical trials, which have included large numbers of patients now, show that the use of prophylactic infusions is massively reduced. So down to probably no more than four or five injections per year, I would say. I mean, there is a, there is a massive reduction in the use of factor infusions. Is there any data on how many people have gone back to prophylaxis after gene therapy? There is beginning to be that sort of data, and it's a little variable. I mean, almost none of the factor nine 
treated patients have gone back to prophylaxis, but some of the factor eight patients have. Uh, remember, a very small number, the gene therapy doesn't work, so they need to return to their regular prophylaxis. And then some of the patients are maybe uh, treating themselves around um, sporting activities or other situations where they may expect to bleed more. Is prophylaxis with factor eight or nine just as effective if they've had gene therapy and had to return to prophylaxis? Yeah, so one of the important things to keep in mind is if the gene therapy doesn't work, or if you need a little bit more, suppose your post-gene therapy level is 15%, but you want to do something more strenuous, you can treat yourself in just the same way that you would have done before. So there are, there are no drawbacks from being a gene therapy failure or needing to top up the gene therapy. Is there an explanation why levels seem more stable in hemophilia B than in hemophilia A? The simple answer is that the cells that we deliver the gene therapy to are used to making factor nine. So normally factor nine is made in patients who, persons who do not have hemophilia in the liver cells. And so we think that the liver cells are much more comfortable in making factor nine over a long period of time. Those liver cells do not in normal circumstances, make factor eight. And so part of the mystery, we believe, is that, that making those liver cells make a protein that is not naturally made, over time, um, they get stressed. They, they undergo this thing called cellular stress, and this reduces the levels over the, the first two or three years after gene therapy is delivered. Ten years ago, did you think hemophilia gene therapy would achieve levels like the ones we're talking about? I think you know me well enough to know that I'm the ultimate optimist. So I, I always believe that gene therapy would work. In fact, a number of years ago, we published a manuscript saying that gene therapy was such an ideal treatment for hemophilia that if it failed in hemophilia, gene therapy would never work. I'm not surprised. However, having said that, I think the recent advances, the speed of recent advances has been quite remarkable particularly for factor nine, which currently now looks as though this could be long-term curative. It could well be that the patients who receive factor nine gene therapy may not need to treat themselves with factor nine for a very, very long period of time. Factor eight is always more difficult, so we'll have to see. So th this has been a dream for the last 30 years. It's been your dream for the last 30 years, I mean, ever since those factor nine, eight and nine genes were cloned. For whom do you think it's now a reality? I think it's now a reality for anyone who's interested in a different way of being treated. If you do not wish to think about your hemophilia, if you could lead a hemophilia-free existence in your head and your body, gene therapy can be that answer. It may not be the way that everyone wants to treat themselves initially. Maybe people inevitably will be more cautious. But some of the results, particularly in factor nine, are looking very, very encouraging for long-term absence of injections of any sort. And so that is really a remarkable advance in the treatment of this disease. Though I, I think we have to say it, it's not for everybody at the moment. We don't expect more than maybe 10 or 15% of patients to be interested in this. So I think there is no thought on the part of treaters that suddenly people are going to keep saying, I want gene therapy now. But there will for a certain type of patient who doesn't want any sort of prophylaxis because it's a hassle. 
It's, it's always on your mind about when you give yourself prophylaxis. If you want to free yourself from that, gene therapy should be considered very carefully and is an option. But again, there are some restrictions in terms of eligibility. Yeah. So the main things about eligibility are, first of all, you have to undergo immune testing to see whether you have antibodies to the viral vector. And unfortunately, that will eliminate somewhere in the region of 60%, 70% of patients. So even if you want gene therapy, you have to pass this screening test, first of all. That will be the first thing. There's no gene therapy for individuals below the age of 18 at the moment, although that's likely to drop to the age of 12 relatively soon, I think. Uh, If you have an inhibitor or you've had a past history of an inhibitor, you're also not eligible. So those are the principal things at the moment, which means that not everyone is eligible. Before we end, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? I think the only other message I'd like to give is that the reason that we've been able to make these advances is due to the the village of hemophilia, the community of hemophilia, the patients, all the healthcare workers, and the scientists. This is in part why I think hemophilia was an ideal target, because this community is extremely well informed. All of the groups of individuals as patients, treaters, and scientists work together, and that's why we've been able to make these advances, which now potentially are available to patients who might be considering a different way of treating their disease. Thank you very much, Dr. Lindekrep. We really appreciate your research work, but also your contributions to informing the community. For more information, we invite you to check out more episodes in this series, Hemophilia Gene Therapy, Dream or Reality? This podcast series was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer Canada to the Canadian Hemophilia Society.